hey, welcome to First Church. So glad that you are joining us for worship today. In addition to everybody who's here on site, I know we have a whole bunch of people who are worshiping with us online as well. I just looked and we've got Karis who's out in Germany watching with us. We've also got Caitlin who's at home right now because she has a sick kid. And then also we've got Kelly and her family driving back from Dallas and a whole bunch more. So if you are here on site, would you put your hands together? Welcome in all of our online family joining us for worship here today. And I'm excited about next Sunday. It is our You're Invited series. Can't wait. It's our tailgate Sunday, so make sure you invite people, but also wear your favorite team colors or gear or jersey, whatever. It's going to be a fun day. We're going to have some snacks and some games and all sorts of surprises. So make sure you are here and inviting people to be with us next Sunday. And I'm excited to jump in to our We Are First Church series, wrap it up today. But before I do, I'm going to go back in time just a little bit. A few weeks ago, before we started this series, we had an awesome Sunday here called Summer Life Sunday, where we celebrated all that God has been doing this past summer through our next-gen ministries. And if you were here on that day, you noticed that we had a whole bunch of our high school students on stage helping us lead worship. And here's a picture of some of those students who were up on stage. We put this up on our social media accounts. And it's awesome to see all those students on stage. You guys did a great job, by the way, those of you guys who are part of that. You guys bring such energy, you know, to the room. And it's just a lot of fun. But when I saw this picture up on social media, what stood out to me wasn't all the students, as cool as that is, what stood out to me was this figure right here. Can you see that? Can we zoom in in just a little bit, blow it up? Yeah, that is Tim Tibbles, who is our creative arts minister, and I want you to notice something. He is jumping higher than any of the students that are on stage. He's got some mad hops. He really does, and if you know Tim, that doesn't surprise you at all, because he has some pretty impressive moves. Case in point, his oldest daughter got married like two weeks ago, and at the reception, he and the father of the groom got into a dance-off. Of course they did. It's Tim Tibbles, right? Of course they did. And let's just say, I think Tim won. Take a look at this video. Is that not awesome? I just can't wait for him to do that on stage when he's leading worship, you know? That's gonna be cool. And it was funny, the person who posted that video on social media, they used one word to describe that moment when Tim did the splits, and it's this. It was the word epic. And I have to agree, that was a pretty epic moment, pretty epic video. Now, we use that word a whole lot in our culture today. Some people would argue that it's overused. But when somebody says that something is epic, what are they saying? They're saying, well, it's out of the norm. It's something that is memorable, something that stands out, something that might even be you know, like groundbreaking or earth-shattering, seismic in nature. It's something that when you see it, you kind of shake your head and you think, did I really just see that? Did that really just happen? And here's the thing. As you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our New Testament, and you read about the life and the ministry of Jesus, what you will find is that Jesus' life is chalked full of epic moments. And his epic moments weren't like a dance-off at a wedding reception or anything like that. But he did things like walk on water and calm storms and heal people who were sick and teach in such a way that it left people astonished and 
amazed. And today in the message, we're going to look at arguably one of, what is one of the most epic moments in Jesus's ministry. In fact, it was so epic that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include this story, include this moment in his life. And if you've been in church before, you've probably heard this story preached on. And even if you're new to church, you've probably heard some of the details of this passage. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a pretty cool text. It's an epic moment in Jesus' ministry. And we're going to look at Mark's version of this historical moment in Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to be camped out today as we get started. And as we go to Mark chapter 6, what we find is this. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. I mean, his ministry is famous at this point. People come from all over in order to meet him. Everywhere he goes, a crowd is around him. Everywhere he goes, it's a crazy scene. It's so crazy that at times people, all these people can be exhausting and Jesus knows that. And so Jesus has been ministering to the people with his disciples for some time and he realizes that his disciples need a break. They're exhausted. They're worn out. So this is what Jesus says to them. Jesus says, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Let's get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. See, Jesus, because he created us, knows something about us. He knows we can't run on empty forever. That if we run on empty forever, eventually we're not going to be able to go any further. That every now and then we need to take some time to rest and recharge. And there's nothing wrong with that. I remember one time driving by a church and they had a marquee sign. And on their sign it said, when I rest, I rust. And it was the idea that as Christians we should never stop. We just keep going. And I do think it's true that as Christians we press on and we keep going. But here's the thing. If we just keep going and we don't take time to refuel, we won't be able to make it where we need to go. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he encouraged his disciples over and over and over again to take the rest that was necessary, to take the rest that they needed. You've probably heard the old adage that if Satan can't make you bad, then he'll make you busy. And I think Satan uses busyness a whole lot to stress us out and frustrate us and exhaust us so that we can't do what God is calling us to do. And I bet most of us could probably identify with this statement right here. We are often overscheduled at work, underscheduled at home, and unscheduled with God. You ever been there? I have. I've had seasons of my life when that has been me. And that's why it's important for us to take the time to slow down and rest and get spiritually recharged because God knows that exhaustion will rob us of the joy that he wants for us to experience in life. Exhaustion will rob us from really engaging in life and experiencing life as he wants for us to experience it. So Jesus tells his disciples to get into a boat, go to a solitary place so they can rest. And I hope that they rested while they were on the boat because their period of rest didn't last very long because this is what happens. It says, but many, this is talking about the crowds, but many who saw them, the disciples and Jesus leaving, recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. 
So Jesus wants to take some time to rest and recharge with his disciples. They get into a boat, and before they even reach their destination, the crowds are there waiting on them. This reminds me of any time that my wife, Allison, and I want to take a nap. You know, like the kids fall asleep watching a movie or something, and I'm like, okay, here's our chance. We can rest too. And so we go to lay down, and we shut our eyes, and like it's almost as if the moment that we shut our eyes, I hear this little angelic voice. Hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy, let's play. And I'm like, okay, it lasted for three seconds. And now we're up again. You know, that's how it works. I love being a dad. I really do. But there are some moments I just want to sleep. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I think you parents are with me. You, you get that. And that's what's going on here. Hey, they had a quick moment to rest, but it was soon interrupted. And here's the thing. Even though their period of rest was interrupted, Jesus wasn't bothered by the crowds. Instead, he has compassion for them. That's what the text goes on to tell us. It says, that when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. See, normally when we hear the word compassion, what we think about is feeling sorry for someone else. And in a sense, that's part of compassion, yes. But this Greek word that's used to describe this emotion that Jesus had for the crowds is something that means something much deeper than just feeling sorry or sad for somebody. It's actually a word that's used over and over again in the Gospels to describe Jesus' emotion for people, and it's the Greek word splognitsomai. Can you guys say that with me, splognitsomai? Here we go, one, two, three, splognitsomai, gesundheit. Yeah, that's the Greek word that is used here, and it's a really cool, unique Greek word that means to hurt in your bowels because you see somebody else hurting. You ever been so upset about something, so disturbed by something that your stomach hurts? That's what Jesus is feeling in this moment. When he sees these crowds that have flocked to him, that have beat him to their destination, his stomach hurts for them. Their pain becomes his pain. And Mark tells us why. It says the reason why Jesus felt like this, had this compassion on them, is because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, those of you who know anything about sheep, you know that sheep lack a great sense of direction. They need a shepherd to lead them and guide them. Without somebody leading them, then sheep, they're lost. They're searching for home, but they can't find it. Without someone to lead them, they just wander and wander and wander. This is how Jesus sees the people. Searching for something, but they don't know what. Lost, but they don't know how to find home. They're wandering. And it's interesting to me, that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is used to describe God's Old Testament people over and over again whenever they were without a king or without a leader. Jesus looks at these people, and he knows that they're lost. He knows that they're searching for something more. They're going through the motions of life, and they're paying the rent, and they're showing up for work, and they're doing everything that this world expects of them, and yet they still feel lost. They still feel empty. They still feel like something is missing. And so Jesus' heart goes out for them. And let me ask, have you ever felt that way? I want you to pay careful attention to what Jesus does next says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then look at what he does. So he began teaching them. Now that's interesting to me because normally we don't associate compassion with teaching. I mean, if this passage had said he had compassion for them and so he healed their sick, that would make sense to us, wouldn't it? 
In fact, we find out from the other gospel accounts that Jesus does end up healing their sick, but he doesn't do that first. He teaches them first. This would make perfect sense to us if it said he had compassion on them, and so he fed them. And we know this is the feeding of the 5,000. He's going to end up feeding them, right? But he doesn't do that first. The first thing he does is he teaches them. Why? Because Jesus knows their greatest need. And Jesus knows that their greatest need is not a physical one, but it's a spiritual one. Jesus knows that he can fill their bellies, but they'll get hungry again. Jesus knows that he can heal their sickness. They're going to get sick again, and eventually they're all going to die, right? We all have to face death. What they needed was something more. What they needed was to be filled on the inside. What they needed was to find something that was eternal. They needed to find eternal meaning to life, eternal purpose. They needed to find out God's eternal plan for them. They need to live with eternal hope and eternal peace and eternal satisfaction. What they needed more than anything was to know the God who created them and loves them and has a plan for their lives. That was their greatest need. And so before he does anything else, He introduces them to the God who loves them and his truth for their lives. And honestly, that's all of our greatest need. That's what we're all longing for deep down on the inside is to have our souls filled, whether we realize it or not. One of my kids' favorite games in all the world is the game hide and seek. They love to play hide and seek and they've gotten better at it over the years as they've gotten a little bit older because when they were young, I mean, God love them. I mean, their hiding places were not great. Like my son Alex, back when we lived in Kentucky almost five years ago, his favorite place to hide was behind a floor lamp. We had this very floor lamp in our living room and I would count and he would go hide and then I would go to almost the same spot every time because I knew where he would hide and he would be behind this floor lamp, like ducked down like this with his eyes shut. I guess because he couldn't see me, that meant I couldn't see him. And so he'd be behind this lamp and I would walk in and play along and I would say, oh, I wonder where Alex is. Where's Alex? Where's Alex? And he would be behind the lamp and just giggle and laugh as if I couldn't hear him, you know? And he would be behind this lamp and eventually I would find him and he would be so excited that I actually found him. My daughter, Addie, wasn't any better. Just a few years ago, we were playing hide and seek outside and I went to find her and this is where I found her. Look at this picture. She's in the middle of the grass, just with her head down. Again, she can't see me, so I guess that means I can't see her. And we all know that's not how it works. And let me ask you, what's the point, what's the purpose of hide and seek? To hide? No, not really. The real purpose of hide and seek is to be found. Because if no one ever finds you, then the game isn't any fun. I mean, is there anybody out there right now who's hiding that's like, hey, it's been 10 years and still nobody's found me. Let me tell you something. If it's been 10 years and no one's found you, that's intentional, okay? People don't want to find you. That's on you. No, we eventually want to be found. And if you're like me and you're playing hide and seek and it takes people a while to find you, eventually what do you start to do? Like knock on a wall or maybe you cough, make some noise. Maybe you stick a foot out, you know, for your kids to see or whatever. I'm over here. Because if no one ever finds you, then it's not any fun. And we live in a world today where spiritually speaking, people want to be found deep down. Now they're hiding and they're hiding behind their status, their careers. They're hiding behind 
their relationships, maybe family members or friends. They're hiding behind their past, their past mistakes, or their past hurt or pain. They're hiding behind their social media accounts and that image that they present to everybody else. They're hiding, and they're back here, and they're saying, I don't need anybody. I'm good. I don't need God. I don't need the church. I don't need you. I'm good. But deep down, they really want to be found. Deep down, they're sticking a leg out, hoping somebody will find them and show them what they're really searching for, what they're really looking for. See, the greatest act of compassion is introducing someone to the God who loves them. And that's the whole reason why Jesus came. Listen to Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek, hide and seek, (laughs) came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus came to find us so that we could have what our souls are longing for, so that we could live in this eternal relationship with the God who loves us and created us and has a purpose for our lives. But here's the thing. Jesus' plan for finding people who are lost involves us. The way that Jesus wants to find people is through you and me, those who have already been found. His followers. And that's why what happens next in this passage is so important. See, Jesus teaches for a long time. And I mean a long time. He teaches all day long to the point that it's late in the evening and they haven't had anything to eat. They've skipped breakfast. They've skipped lunch. And now it's dinner time and they still haven't had anything to eat. You guys think that I preach long. I mean, that's nothing compared to Jesus. I'm just following in his steps, okay? But, you know, Jesus preaches all day long and the people, they are hungry and Jesus recognizes this. And here's the thing. They're in a remote place. There's not a McDonald's close by. There's not a quick trip or a Walmart anywhere. There's no place to buy food and so this is what Jesus does Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to one of them where will we get enough food to feed all these people that's a pretty interesting question isn't it there's not a store for miles and there's a whole bunch of people we're talking like you know 5,000 men but the women and the children weren't counted so we're talking like 10,000 maybe 15,000 people and Jesus says where are we going to find food for these people And I bet the disciples are thinking, what are you talking about, Jesus? We can't feed all these people, even if we could find that much food. We don't have the money to pay for it. But I want you to notice what John tells us in his gospel. He says that Jesus asked this only to test them because he already knew, he already had in mind what he was going to do. See, Jesus is in total control here. He has a plan. But he wants his disciples to be part of that plan. He knows what he's going to do, but he wants them to be part of what he's going to do. Because he's trying to teach them something. He's testing them to teach them. And the truth that he wants them to know is the same truth he wants us to understand today. And it's this, what seems impossible on our own is possible with him. That when we trust him, we can do what he's asking us to do, even if it seems impossible. Because Jesus will never ask us to do anything that he will not give us the power to accomplish. And the disciples, they needed this lesson. And I think we do sometimes as well. Because listen to the disciples' response here. They say, this is a remote place. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now here's the thing. 
that's a very practical, rational, reasonable, logical response. The people are starving. There's not any place to buy them food. Even if there was some place, we don't have enough money to do it. So let's dismiss the people. Let's send them home so they can go get something to eat. That is not a bad answer if you leave God out of the equation. Because here's the thing. That same answer could be given by any practical atheist. Because you can give that answer without having God, right? Any practical atheist could have said the exact same thing. And it's interesting to me how sometimes we live our lives like practical atheists. So we believe in God. We say we believe in God. And we even say God can do the impossible through us. And God can do the impossible through our church. We say things like that. But then when we go out and actually live, we leave God out of the equation. And everything we do is stuff that we can just do on our own, in our own strength, by our own might, on our own, without him, leaving him out of the equation. And sometimes it's not just that we leave him out of the equation of our like, future plans. We leave him out of our day-to-day lives. And we go on living for ourselves and we never include him. And Jesus here wants to wake them up. And so look at what Jesus says to them. Jesus says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. Don't send them away. I'm not done with the people yet. I'm not done teaching them. I'm not done. Don't send them away. You give them something to eat. Now, the disciples have just said, Jesus, you need to send them away. They almost give him a command. They'll listen to you. If you tell them to go home, they'll go home. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And I bet you these disciples are probably thinking, what? And listen to their response here. They say, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? I love that word there, much. That's too much, Jesus. You're asking too much of us. This is impossible. It can't be done. What are you thinking, Jesus? And let me ask you, do you ever think that Jesus expects too much of you? I mean, you never say that. I get it. But deep down, you think, Jesus, do you really expect me to forgive my enemies? That's just asking too much. Jesus, do you really expect me to keep myself sexually pure before marriage? Nobody's doing that. It's a little much to ask, isn't it? Jesus, do you expect for me, when I am married, to be faithful to one person my entire life? That's asking a whole lot. Jesus, do you really expect me not to cut corners at work? Everybody cuts corners. That's how you get ahead. Jesus, do you really expect me not to use deception, but to be honest and a person of character? I mean, this is a dog-eat-dog world out there. You're just asking too much. Jesus, do you really expect your church to change the world? Look around. Do you see the church that I'm a part of? There's a lot of messed up people there. You expect us to be able to change the world? That's a pretty big ask, Jesus. Do you ever expect, do you ever think that Jesus expects too much of you? See, here's the thing. To believe in Jesus is to expect the unexpected. Because you know on your own, yeah, it's way too much for you to accomplish. But with him, all things are possible. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, go find out how much food we have here. So they go out and they search out the crowd, the thousands of people that are there, and they come back with 
basically five loaves of bread and two fish. And don't think, I mean, when I was a kid and I was growing up in church, I used to think that these were like five huge loaves of bread. You know, don't think of them like that. They were little barley loaves. Uh, they were round, about this big. They were flat. Think about crackers. So basically what the disciples come back with are five little crackers and two small fish. This was equivalent to like crackers and a can of tuna fish. And they found this with a little boy. This was the little boy's sack lunch. Probably that his mama fixed him for that morning and he hadn't uh, had it yet and so they find this little boy with a happy meal and they say Jesus this is what we found that of all these thousands of people this is what we found and Jesus says I can do something with that because remember he's the one who spoke everything into existence out of nothing and if he is the one who can speak everything into existence from nothing what do you think he can do with something what do you think he can do with a little well, we serve a God, who, a God who can do a lot with a little. And that's exactly what happens. He ends up breaking the bread, passing out the fish. And look at what happens. They all ate, all 5,000 plus ate and were satisfied. They didn't just eat. They didn't have just a little nibble. They all got full. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish left over. And the number of the men who had eaten, now the women and children ate too, but they just counted the men, was 5,000. This is an epic miracle. And what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples is, you don't have to figure out how to do what I'm asking you to do. You just have to give me what you have. I'll figure out the how. Just give me what you have. And so often we look at Jesus, we say, Jesus, I can't do it. I can't figure this out. I just don't know what the next step is. And Jesus says, stop trying to figure out the how. Just give me what you have and I'll multiply it. I'll make it happen. That's exactly what he does in this passage. And I am fascinated by this miracle. I mean, I could preach all day about the different details in this miracle. And I don't have time to, but you know, I could preach about how 5,000 plus people were able to eat all at one time. Because here's the thing, when it comes to fooling people, if you're trying to trick somebody with like a fake miracle, you might be able to fool a handful of people. But how do you fool 10 to 15,000 people at one time? And it's not just that they witnessed it and they saw it with their eyes. They all tasted it. They all experienced it. They all got full. You can't fool 15,000 people at one time, right? I mean, this was an impressive miracle. I could talk about that. I could talk about how Jesus got the five loaves and two fish from a little boy, a little boy that, by the way, wasn't even counted that day. He used a little boy that wasn't even part of the official count because they only counted adult men. And he used somebody who wasn't even in their count in order to do this incredible miracle. And it just reminds us that God uses the insignificant in order to do the significant. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. I could preach on that all day long, but I don't have time. I could talk about how he made them sit down in the green grass and how that reminds us of Psalm 23, how he makes me lie down in green pastures. I could talk about how there were 12 basketfuls left over and how that was a tangible reminder for each of the disciples who doubted. I could talk about how Jesus divided them up into even groups and had them all sit down before the disciples served them. And that speaks to all of our organized people out there that Jesus was organized. And if you're OCD, hey, Jesus is for you, all right? Because he had a plan of how to organize the people and feed them. I could talk about all that stuff, but you know what stands out to me the most? It's this line right here. You give them something to eat. You know why? Because Jesus didn't have to say that. Remember in the Old Testament when God brought manna from heaven? He didn't need the disciples 
to make this miracle happen. He could have fed the people by dropping bread from heaven if he wanted to. He didn't have to use the disciples. But he turned to them, he said, you give them something to eat because in his infinite wisdom, the way that he is going to reach the world, the way he is going to save the world, the way he is going to introduce the world to his father is through those who he has already found, which is us. That means we have a mission to accomplish. We have work to be done. And even though this mission may seem huge and big, We can do the impossible because of the one who is with us. That statement, that command, you give them something to eat, is for you and me as well. And Jesus wanted his disciples to realize that he could do the impossible through them. And I believe he wants us to realize as the church today that he can do the impossible through us. So when it comes to living on mission, so when it comes to living by faith, our focus is not on what we have, but on who's with us. And we give what we have to him and he uses it. So don't look at me and say, but I'm not much and I don't have a lot of talents and resources and abilities. I just have a little bit. We just give Jesus our five loaves of bread and two fish and he does something with it. We give him what we have and he uses it for his greater plan. And that's why here at First Church, We don't believe that we're just here to waste time. We're not here to be space takers. We're here to be difference makers because the world needs the church at its best. And we believe that we are here at this point in time for such a time as this to reach this generation with the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why in our core values, we believe that unleashing love is essential to our ministry. We've been talking about these three things that we believe that are essential to everyone who calls First Church home. And when we talk about unleashing love, it's not just nice language that we use. We believe every single one of us is called to live on mission, unleashing Jesus' love every single day because the church exists so that the joy of heaven can invade the sadness of earth. It's not that we will ever fully eliminate the sadness of earth, but while we are here, we are pushing against the sadness of earth with the joy of heaven that lives within us. And what we need to wrap our minds around is that God wants to use us, you and me, to do epic things for him. Yes, you. And so that's why here at First Church, we do what we can with what we have. We give what we have to Jesus and we let him multiply it. You know, we took up a dollar drive not too long ago for the Pregnancy Resource Center here in town. And we took up one dollar drive and we were able to raise enough money, collect enough money to pay the PRC's rent for an entire year. Now, how cool is that? God can do a lot with a little, and we wanna serve the 918 in any way we can. I hear stories all the time of people who have had their homes cleaned up or they've had help moving or maybe we've gone and we've met somebody in their darkest hour and helped them with their medical needs or whatever because we wanna show Jesus' love to the 918. And here recently, we had a pack the bus drive where we wanted to collect backpacks for kids in need here in Owasso. We were able to provide 331 Owasso students with school supplies this year who are in need. How cool is that? I mean, isn't that great? Yeah, we can give God praise for that as well. And here's a quick video of us delivering that school supplies. Lord God, and I thank you so much for those who have volunteered time, Lord God, to serve and, and sort and, and pack and even distribute with us today, Lord Jesus. I thank you so much for the work you're doing through the hearts of the people at First Church. Lord, uh, thank you so much for providing to meet the needs of of children in our communities and their families, Father. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.
important, it's not just that we want to reach the 918. We wanna be a church that introduces people to Jesus all over the world. I have up here with me today some ladies who are up here, one, because they make me look a whole lot better, but also because here in a couple weeks, they're going to be going on a mission trip to Honduras. And a couple of them, it's their first time ever going on a mission trip, never done that before. They're taking a step of faith because they believe that God can do a lot with a little. They just wanna offer God what they have, their time, their resources to go and to unleash God's love. And what I found out, I didn't know this, but they were telling me exactly what they were gonna be doing in Honduras this morning. And they were saying that they're gonna be feeding, what, over 200 kids? Is that what you said? 200, 241 kids, wow. Or women, women, 241 women. Yeah, okay, great, as they're in Honduras. And so it's cool that we're preaching on feeding the 5,000 and they're going to go and feed people in Honduras. So what I thought we would do before we wrap up the sermon, I've got one more thing I wanna say, but I just thought we'd pray for them because we're sending out mission trips all the time. We are reaching missionaries, we are help supporting missionaries all over the world, helping them reach people for Christ. And I just thought since they're leaving here in a couple weeks, we should pray for them before they go. So if you would bow with me, let's lift them up in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for these ladies, for them willing to sacrifice their time and their energy and their resources to go and to serve you. And I just pray as they do, feed these ladies in Honduras, that you could bless them, that you would keep them safe, protect them, but Father, also use them to make an epic difference in people's lives. We thank you so much for their love for you and their dedication, and we lift them up in the name of Jesus, amen. Can we give it up for this Honduras group here? Yeah, thank you. God wants you to be part of his epic plan. Now, here's the thing. Yes, we have love 918 opportunities where we serve. And yes, we have mission trips that we take and we support missionaries around the world. But it's not just those things. Every single day, we are called to unleash love. Every single day. When you walk into Walmart, when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're with your family or friends, on the ball field, wherever you are, you are there to usher in the joy of heaven into the lives of other people. That's what we are called to do. And it's easy to forget that. You know how I know that? Because of Mark chapter eight. You see, we've been in Mark chapter six, feeding of the 5,000. But Mark chapter eight comes later. In Mark chapter eight, something interesting happens. Jesus and his disciples are in Gentile territory and they're, again, surrounded by a whole bunch of people. This time, there's 4,000 men there that they count, plus women and children. So it's not as big of a crowd, but still a pretty big crowd. Thousands of people are gathering around them. And Jesus has been teaching for three days straight and the people, they've run out of food. They're getting hungry. Sound familiar? We've been here before, Right? And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, where are we gonna get enough food for all these people? And you would think that in that moment, the disciples thinking back to just a little while ago when Jesus fed 5,000 would say, we gotta find a little boy with a Happy Meal. You know, we gotta find a sack lunch somewhere because Jesus is gonna do something great again. But you know how the disciples respond just a little bit later after witnessing the feeding of the 5,000? His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? What? They had just witnessed Jesus feed over 5,000. Now they got 4,000 plus, and they're wondering how they're, how they're gonna do this? Well, you see, if we were to keep reading in Mark chapter six, we find out that the Bible says, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. 
See, they were focused on the miracle, but what they missed was the Messiah who was with them. And I chose this text today to preach on for a reason because I've never preached on the feeding of the 4,000. I've preached on the feeding of the 5,000 before. You know the last time I did it? Last time we had a We Are First Church series, a year ago, last June. And on the day that we talked about living on mission, unleashing love, I chose the feeding of the 5,000 to preach on. And I did it a little differently, but I still preached on that text. And I thought it spoke to our church and I got a lot of positive feedback. But we looked at that line a year ago, you give them something to eat. And let me ask, over a year later, who have you been feeding? Over a year later, what has God been doing in your life that you couldn't do on your own? How have you been trusting him? What risk have you been taking? How have you been living by faith? Or have you been living more like a practical atheist? Have you been unleashing love? Have you been living on mission? Because that command, you give them something to eat, is still for us today. It's not about what we have, but it's about who's with us. And when Jesus said in the Great Commission, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you catch that last line? He says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The reason why we can do this, the reason why we can change the world, the reason why we can penetrate the darkness with light, the reason why we can make eternal differences in people's lives and the broken can be made whole, the reason why we can turn this world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ is because of the one who is with us to the very end of the age. But forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. And when you forget the one who is with you, then you just live life according to your own strength within your own abilities. And epic isn't the word that would describe how you're serving Jesus. God wants to do epic things in and through you and in and through our church. And the command you give something, you give them something to eat is for us. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Because I think maybe the reason why the feeding of the 5,000 is included in all four gospel accounts is not just because it was an epic miracle, it was, but also because they all missed the point and they all included it to make sure that we wouldn't. Let's go out and let's give the world something to eat. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this moment we've had to open up your word. And I just pray, Father, that we will be those who unleash love on people. We've got this You're Invited series coming up. Father, let's invite people to come and be part of what you're doing here in this place. Use us in epic ways beyond ourselves. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.